Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Jane McCormick. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, uh, so we have been doing Periscope for two weeks now. We've had a bunch of our listeners uh, sign in and ask us questions and hang out with us on Friday afternoons. So we wanted to remind you that we're going to keep doing that uh, as long as you are interested. So every Friday at noon, we will be on the Periscope. And if you want to find out more about that, you can, of course, visit us on all of our social media channels, which is Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of those. We are Blow the Mind. Don't forget that website, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, wait, what's that? What's yeah. on that website? All the stuff. All of it. Yeah. Is that where the videos are? That's where the videos are. That's where the blog posts are. That's where all the podcast See, episodes are. Like some are. of you listen to this and think all we do is the podcast, but we've got a lot going on. Blogging. There's Robert does some amazing content about butts. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, yep. there's some butt science on there. Butt galleries yep. and there's uh monster science both in video form and blog form. That's true. The latest one I liked a lot, the cat bus one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just did one on uh, Cat Bus from Totoro. I uh, just rewatched that film with uh, uh, my family. And, uh, yeah, there's some cool science behind Cat Bus. I've actually never seen it. <sighs> You've got to get on there. Well, you know the other new thing that we've got going on? New music at the top of the show, guys. Yeah, how about that? A welcome, a welcome change that was uh, created by our fabulous producer, Noel Brown. Bravo to you, sir. But also, I didn't notice this until I had heard it a few times. It reminds me of the Doctor Who theme. Oh, oh cool. Well, that's, you know, that's it's, perfect. uh, with the, with the lead part. Well, I like to think of us as the, that, you know what the three doctors is? It's when three no. different doctors from different time periods all meet up together with their TARDISes and hang out and, and, stop bad things from happening. Huh. So we're like the three doctors. But just depends You're obviously on the angry doctor. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm yeah, I'm the curmudgeon doctor. Uh that would be I guess I'm most like Peter Capaldi. Yeah, that would so, be the angry doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've all met up and here we are to talk about of course what doctor the doctor would talk about, the 2015 Ig Nobel Prizes. That's right. Yeah, it's a, the, we all three decided to come together on this one because uh, there are a lot of studies. We want to we want to roll through them in two episodes. Each of us taking the head on a different study, uh, not doing a super deep dive, but giving you a nice overview about what this particular study is, why it's ridiculous, why in many cases it's actually important because uh, that's one of the keys here. The Ig Nobel Prizes have been around uh, since I believe 1991, and each year, they award 10 prizes to various bits of research, peer-reviewed studies that, uh, you know, it's not the kind of stuff you're going to see capturing the headlines necessarily in right. New Scientist or Probably Scientific American. not winning an actual Nobel Prize. Right. <laughs> at, here at How Stuff Works, we've sort of developed a, like, sub-theme for studies like this, which is uh, sometimes we publish these on our now uh, How Stuff Works channel, which is there's a study for that, which is the kind of like, can you believe somebody did this? Uh, but at the same time, I think the thing about the ignobles is that there's always some value and importance to the research oh, as well. Oh, yeah. Like, I always think of, in, in cases like this, I think of science as a slime mold in a maze, right? And, okay. and the slime mold is expanding outward, uh, exploring its terrain, trying to find food, and so it's going down all the hallways uh, to explore, and that's what science does. And just because 
a particular area of study seems kind of pointless at first glance, or it seems just very, very specific, or it's trying to prove something that we already kind of know in our gut, it's still important that science go there because science is is mapping the universe. Yeah, and some of the corners of that map are watching elephants pee. Exactly. Well, okay. I mean, I slime mold. Can we stick with the gelatinous cube here? Can we use a gelatinous cube, or is a slime mold like a very specific metaphor for ignoble science? Um, I like the slime mold. Because yeah. slime mold is swarm intelligence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, so uh, let, let's familiarize the audience though, with what these things are, because the first time I heard about it was in one of our episodes when we were talking about necrophilia, mm-hmm. and we uh, there was a study that had previously won the ignoble, which was about a guy watching uh, a duck try to have sex with a dead duck. That's right. That's uh, one of the big ones. It was like it's 70 minutes of, uh, of him watching that with a notebook. If you really want to hear the whole full story, go back and listen to that necrophilia episode. But uh, it's weird, but it also had value to it. And so uh, l- let's kind of encapsulate what these things are for our audience, and then we can dive into the, the 10 studies. Well, the, the principal individual here is Mark Abrams. Um, he's the, the editor and co-founder of Improbable Research Magazine, uh, which you can find uh, at their website. Uh, we'll have a link to that on the landing page for this episode. And uh, they regularly cover research of this nature, stuff that's weird, stuff that's uh, a little wacky, but it's still science, and it's always covered in essentially a loving way. Yeah, they um, say that it, it's supposed to make you laugh, but also make you think. And yeah. I found this was true about a lot of the studies we looked at this time. I I like the sense that um, it is certainly not stroking the ego of the scientists who perform these studies, but it's not really making fun of them either. Right. Or maybe sort of making fun of them, but at least not denigrating their work. Yeah, I think there have only been a couple of cases where, because for one thing, you can nominate your own work, and they get about 5,000 nominations um, each year. Uh, but I, I can only think of two cases offhand where the individuals did not receive it warmly, one oh, really? of which was the U.S. Air Force over uh, their gay bomb, which they won a prize for in 2007. <laughs> they did not I see I remember the, hearing uh, about this. Yeah, they, they did not see the humor in it. <clears throat> no, hold on. What were the details? Tales of the gay bomb. Uh, the gay bomb, um, as I recall, was a proposed uh, uh, weaponized um, uh, aphrodisiac that you would be able okay. to throw into the enemy trenches and, to and harm enemy morale by making them yeah get, get friendly, making with each them other. amorous and confused. Uh, it was uh, referenced nicely on an episode of Thirty Rock several years back, but um, but yeah, the, the the Air Force did not see the humor in that, and there have there have been a couple of curmudgeons along uh you know over the years that have uh, have come out and said oh well this is just a you know waste of time uh, for instance in 95 Robert May the British government's chief scientific advisor at the time uh was a big was a big critic of the Nobel prizes and he was <laughs> saying that it should only be used uh to uh, you know to ridicule anti-science and pseudoscience and you should leave the the the, the real scientist alone uh, mm-hmm. Again, totally missing the point that the scientists are the are the ones who enjoy this the most. Don't you love people who hate humor? <laughs> so I let's address that for a second, though, because uh, right before we came in here, I watched the almost all of the ceremony mm-hmm. for the 2015 uh, awards, which we just, which is what we're going to cover today. I watched a lot of this too, and I and I feel like. 
you definitely get the tone that they're going for if you watch the ceremony. They they did a great job filming it. It's got multiple camera angles. It's filmed in this beautiful theater at Harvard University. Um, but I saw Spalding Gray at that same theater like oh God, fifteen years ago or something like that. So it was it was neat to see that. But uh, I, the humor is very oh wacky. It yeah, it's it's that kind of like academic, like we don't want to offend anybody humor that's just a little zany and goofy. And so at this at one on one hand I appreciate it and I totally understand uh <laughs> I understand that this guy who was it? Who who Robert May, who was so like against it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I I don't understand where he's coming from, but I'm I'm also somewhat sympathetic because it's just like wackety schmackety do zany like yeah. you know like uh, jokes and stuff and yeah, but puns. It, but the, the thing whole is, time. even if you're not laughing with the the jokes, you're still like, oh well, that's kind of adorable. <clears throat> to watch, yeah, to watch yeah, some old is. old scientists get up there and kind of uh, you know have, uh, you know yuck it up. I that. will confess though that it was unbearable for me to a point that I had to, I watched it on YouTube and I had to watch it on double speed. So everybody was talking really fast like chipmunks, but I got the gist of everything and I, I paid a special please attention. Please stop, Christian, I'm bored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but please, please stop, Joe. Tell them about uh, what's her name, Pootie Pie or... <laughs> I think it's called Sweetie Poo. Sweetie they have, Poo. They have oh, a Poo- child. Pootie Pie is the guy on YouTube. Oh, I I don't know. Yeah. I'm not anyway, sure. uh, yeah, they have a little character who uh, is a child who comes up. It's like the Oscar music that starts to play when people get a little too much gratitude in their speech at the Oscars, yeah. uh, and they want to get you off the stage. At, at this ceremony, they've got a child who runs up to you and proclaims boredom and tells you to stop talking. And she's precocious. And then on top of that, then they bring back all the f- Former Sweetie Poos. Did you watch that part? <laughs> no, I didn't. Watch Every that part. former Sweetie Poo <laughs> is a part of the procession, uh, and they are like the the Vanna Whites that kind of like escort out the the winners of the awards and then escort them back in. And they do this whole cutesy poo thing where they have the Sweetie Poos all tease one another in front of the audience. It's a little much. Um, <laughs> also. I, I grew you, up. You have a you have a very dark heart that has I no do. room for for cuteness. Well, I, I do, and I'll allow this as well. I'm from Boston, and uh, I'm very familiar with Harvard University. I lived right near there for a long time, and I'm very familiar with this kind of humor. That is, you know, it's very, um, it yeah, twee. I guess is one way to put it. So um, I will warn I will warn our listeners ahead of time that it, maybe I'm the dark heart here, but I was a, mm, a little put off by, by the zany humor. However, the studies themselves are amazing. Well, let's yeah. launch into them here. Um, Joe, I believe you're up first. Uh, tell us about the Chemistry Prize winner, the Ig Nobel Chemistry Prize winner for 2015. Okay, so the, the 2015 Chemistry Prize went to, I'm going to say their names, and there's a lot of them, so bear with me for a second here. Callum Ormond, Colin Raston, Tom Yuan, Stephen Kudlachek, Samirin Kunche, Joshua N. Smith, William A. Brown, Caitlin Pugliese, Tivoli Olson, Mariam Iftikar, Greg Weiss. Oh, and that's it. 
them for demonstrating a mechanical process to unboil an egg. So yes, the, these scientists all work together. Now, I think the the main scientist who was involved in this process, the one at least who had spoken to the media the most about it, was Greg Weiss. Okay. Uh, but they came up with this mechanical process to unboil an egg. Well, hold on, part of an egg, the egg white. And okay. note that this is not uncooking an egg and that you can't unfry an egg or unscramble an egg or un... I wonder if you could unpoach an egg, maybe. Uh, but at least what you can do is unboil an egg white. So the paper is called, and I, I love the... Uh, the academic alienation of this title. <laughs> Sheer stress mediated refolding of proteins from aggregates and inclusion bodies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They yeah. didn't call the paper All unboiling egg is whites. A, is a colon and then another long sentence after yeah. that. And, and that's yeah. one of the beautiful things about the Ig Nobel Prize. Is, 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 this is a great example of where they really got to the heart of what this study is yeah. in a way that the rest of us can enjoy. Yeah, and so it was published in January 2015 in Chem Biochem. And here's what happened. The researchers took an egg, and then they divided the whites from the yolk, and then they boiled the egg whites for 20 minutes at about 194 degrees Fahrenheit or 90 degrees C. And if you have ever seen the white part of a hard-boiled egg, you know what we're dealing with is the final product here. And so egg whites in their natural state are a mixture of water and proteins, including the protein lysozyme, uh, which is a protein associated with immune function, and more on that in a minute. When you boil egg whites, the folded proteins that are in the egg whites get denatured, meaning that they sort of lose their precisely folded structure, and that folded structure is what makes a protein do the things that it does. Okay. It's sort of like what determines its role in the in the tiny bio world that it inhabits. And they also get all tangled together, and they end up forming this solid block of biojello that we recognize as cooked egg white. Sure. Um, so that's what normally happens when you when you boil an egg white. It of course happened in this case, as it always does. And how do you fix this problem? So the researchers took the boiled egg whites and dissolved them in a urea solution to turn uh, basically all of it into an untangled up liquid of of unfolded protein, so that's okay. pretty gross. It's a cooked egg white slurry. Then the solution was placed into what they called a vortex fluid device. And what this does is it's kind of like a centrifuge, but different. It, it spins a test tube at really high intensity. I read one source saying it was about 5,000 RPMs, so very, very fast. Uh, for a short time, introducing an amazing amount of sheer stress to the film of fluid, which is about one micron thick, that built up on the walls of the tube. And in a quote given to the Washington Post, Greg Weiss said about the proteins in this process, they're like little elastic bands. This stretches and unstretches them and gives them their shape back. So it's kind of like if you, you know, stretch out a, a tangled up slinky and then get it to reform back into its original shape. But help okay. me out here for a second. So my understanding of the, I didn't read this study, but my understanding of what, how you're presenting it here is the denaturing process by zipping it around at this high speed, are they they're renaturing it. Yeah. 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 Okay. They're refolding back into the original shape that the proteins were before they were denatured by the heat. So it's cooking. not just that they're moving something at such a high speed that it 
like liquefies. No, it's it it's actually reapplying the process. Yeah, they're okay. they're undoing the work of cooking by applying this mechanical stress. Got it. Okay, okay cool. Uh, and so at the end, they, they were able to refold some of the proteins back into their original shapes without it becoming tangled up with one another in the process. That's another problem that can happen. And it worked. At the end, the solution contained proteins comparable to uncooked egg whites. And that immune-related protein I mentioned, lysozyme, that was also found to be present in the final product and functional. Hmm. Okay, so what I want to know, though, is did they make a quiche with this afterwards, and how did it taste? You know, you couldn't really because it's just the egg whites, and you really need some yolks for quiche, because yeah. otherwise that would be pretty gross. Yeah, right. you, could make, you could, what, make a few different mixed drinks, though, right? Ooh. Oh, you probably could, make yeah. A, make a, the, the New Orleans one? with the sour fizz. Uh, what's, it, what's it called when you put an egg white in there? Something Jim fizz? Something something fizz? Gross. Uh, so Gin Ricky Fizzbump. That's like yeah. when people drink like oyster shots and stuff like that. That's nasty. I have no idea but what an oyster goes shot down is. Smooth. Do you add oysters, like raw oysters, to it? Like, like a real oyster? Yeah. That's about like having an oyster, though. I mean, you, you need yeah, to stop but, talking. Yeah. But you just immediately <laughs> mix it with like booze and I think like tomato juice or something like that's that. That's disgusting. That's okay, the 2017 sorry. study. <laughs> okay, so so they did it. They they managed to unboil egg whites and get them back to their original state. Uh, a couple of things. We I guess in case it needs stating, why is this ridiculous? Well, I guess it just sort of seems to contradict the folk understanding of entropy that you can't fix what's broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't unscramble an egg, I think, is an actual expression. Right. <laughs> you might not be able to unscramble an egg, but you can unboil an egg. Well, wow, there's so many fun metaphors that you can reverse with this. Right. I, th- I think it's also funny because it involves eggs, which apparently some people just think are inherently funny objects. They perhaps are. Perhaps even yeah. slightly more when they're boiled. Mm-hmm. Especially because it's life. But uh, but this process actually does have real, very important and interesting applications. This okay. is not just uh, for fun. It can make a big difference in many kinds of research involving proteins. For example, hmm. cancer research in the lab hmm. often deals with proteins that have exactly the same problem that cooked egg whites do. They can become uh, tangled and misshapen. So the proteins get denatured or their, their folding gets messed up or they get tangled together or both. And then scientists have to waste a lot of time trying to restore them to, to the original folded shape and structure to get them to be useful. And by conventional means, this is a really time-consuming and wasteful process. Sure. Uh, so this sheer stress method that they introduced okay. with this uh, the Vortex fluid device could actually make cancer research much more efficient in terms of time and cost. Uh, so it was reported in their study that the refolding of protein by sheer stress was faster than the conventional method of, quote, overnight dialysis by a factor of more than 100 times, more mm-hmm. than 100 times faster. So that's why it took 11 people to to write this paper. Uh, there were different people involved with different aspects of it. Like I know some of the people cited in the paper were people who uh, were working with the Vortex fluid device right. itself. Like the, also, uh, the if story you can say is, that like 10 more times, yeah. I want to just see how many times we can say Vortex fluid device throughout this episode. Right. <laughs> So there's some people working with that, some yeah. people who are presumably working with the science of the with proteins. The proteins, yeah, yeah, in the protein labs. There's so. probably some, I'm guessing, like uh, graduate students in there who did like the the 
scut work. Uh, possibly, I, I don't know what every single name corresponds to. It's one of those uh, one of those features of modern science is that you get uh-huh. a lot of names listed. Yeah, let's see if we can find which one of these has the most people applied to it. Okay, okay. So I'm keeping track. We got eleven on this one. Well, let's check out the next prize awarded in the physical science, and this one was a lot of fun. I actually read about this before this episode, but Robert, it was about urine, right? Oh yes, yeah, and you're definitely. Uh you're in for a treat on this one, because uh, this is the physics prize for bladder speed. And notice I said physics and not biology here. That's going to be uh, key as we move forward. Uh, the paper in particular is uh, Duration of Urine Does Not Change with Body Size uh, by Georgia Institute of Technology Researchers uh, Patricia J. Yanga, uh, Jonathan Fama, Jerome Choa, uh, and David L. Hugh. And this was published uh, in the uh, summer 2014 uh, edition of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And they're just right down the street, these, yeah, these folks. Yeah, these are local. local Testing the pee. Yeah. I, I have read several times about the research <clears throat> involving David Hu in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before the, the episode, uh, the, the, the field of fluid dynamics. You see some of the most amazing papers come yeah. out. And, uh, and this one I definitely... Um, uh, uh, fits the bill. Did they use a vortex fluid device? Not as such, no. Okay. So, basically, in a nutshell, the study investigated how quickly 32 different animals urinate. Now, 16 of these are live viewings. Uh, the rest are YouTube videos. Um, it, because they were, they were interested in animals of varying sizes, right? YouTube research. Yeah. So, the, the interesting initial finding here, though, is that uh, it turns out that it's all about the same, at least for animals that weigh at least 6.6 pounds or 3 kilograms. They found that all animals that weigh more than that urinate in the same uh, space of time. Um, huh. So it doesn't matter if it's an elephant's bladder that is um, 3,600 times larger than a cat's. Uh, both animals are going to get their peeing over with in about uh, 20 seconds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And the reason here, as the paper explores, is that as diverse as all the, these different bladder systems are um, and, and all the plumbing, it, they all rely on the fundamental principles of fluid mechanics. Uh, the researchers found that, quote, the urethra is a flow-enhancing device, enabling the urinary system to be scaled up by a factor of 3,600 in volume without compromising its function. One of the idea here is that it's possible that larger animals have longer urethras, and since the weight of the fluid in the urethra is pushing the fluid out, the long urethra increases the flow rate. So this is why if you've ever you know, gone online like our researchers and watched a whole bunch of animals uh, urinate, mm. you might see the larger animals just really pushing it out there like right. a sheet of like urine. A, yeah, like a fire hose. Yeah. Uh, whereas the the smaller creatures, definitely the ones under that 6.6 pound limit, uh, they're just throwing out some droplets. Uh, for instance, mice and rats, less than two seconds spent uh, urinating bats, huh. just a fraction of the speed. So this would be important, of course, keeping your, your pee speed up for an elephant, because uh, uh, if, the, if an elephant had a shorter ure- urethra, it would take longer to urinate. And yeah. during that time, of course, it would be more uh, uh, susceptible to predation. Wow, so okay. I've never I've never really thought about the evolutionary pressures on urination speed. That just doesn't really occur mm-hmm. to really? me as a thing having a big 
having a big fa- uh, impact on your survival or reproduction. Well, but, it's how I mean, much time that you're you're you have to remain stationary and you're somewhat yeah. not paying attention to your surroundings. Do you right? have to remain stationary? Peeing and pooping. Goats? I suppose it have depends you tried on the to do either on the move. It's I haven't difficult. tried. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And you've seen you've both seen Birdemic, correct? I have. Yes. <laughs> so you know what happens. Yeah. It can happen when there are predators about and you need to go potty. And yeah. I'm thinking about my dog who definitely breaks the 22nd uh, rule. I mean, he pees for a long time when we go out first thing in the morning. And that's probably because he's got a cushy life and he doesn't have to worry about the the pressures of survival. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So I probably don't have... Do they measure humans as well? I'm not sure. Yeah, if humans were in the in the study, to be honest, you uh, know, I, I wonder one thing uh, that could be affecting the different times of domesticated animals versus whatever they used in the study. Uh, I'm sure some of those were domesticated. Uh, would be whether they are being prompted to urinate or mm-hmm. whether they're just urinating whenever they feel like it. Yeah, uh, because it could be that in under natural circumstances, you will naturally let the amount of urine build up in your bladder that it will take to evacuate in 20 or 21 seconds. Oh, but if you're a dog who's inside and can't pee until mm-hmm. it's time to go out, you might go beyond that threshold when and accumulate a lot. I like the way you're thinking. Okay, so I probably don't have to tell anybody why this study is ridiculous because, of course, it involves urine. And urine, like eggs, is inherently funny. Um, but as to why it's important, uh, for starters, it's an understudied uh, topic. Uh, not a lot of people are, are putting a lot of time and effort into the uh, the question of uh, urination times for animals. And uh, additionally, the study may help uh, to diagnose urinary problems in animals as well as inspire the design of quote, scalable hydrodynamic systems uh, based on those in nature. So there's a biomimicry potential here. Um, you don't need to necessarily use external pressure to get rid of fluids in a system quickly. Rather, you can let gravity do the trick with the right biomimicry. So possible applications include water tanks, um, uh, backpacks uh, that are used to, you know, uh, water. Yeah, like what those are those camel, camel packs, packs, yeah. yeah. Uh, fire hoses. <clears throat> And um, a couple of uh, examples here in which the the team actually engaged with some additional experimentation. Uh, They actually created a demonstration that empties a teacup, quart, and gallon of water in the same duration for each using varying lengths of connected tubes, thus uh, standing in for the varying uh, urethra uh, lengths uh, lengths among these animals. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, conducted a second experiment in which the team filled three cups with the same amount of water, then emptied them at varying rates by using different lengths of tube. So again, you don't have to use... um, uh, you know, varying amounts of external pressure to move water through a system. You can use, use gravity and tube length. This is, uh, they're like modern day Da Vinci's. Like, yeah. this is, this is the kind of stuff that Da Vinci used to sit around and ponder about and work on in his sketchbooks, like how to move water more efficiently. They're just looking to nature's way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically a biomimetic exercise. Now, so that makes me wonder if the next thing we're going to hear about associated with David Who is an ornithopter. <laughs> that would be great. Well, wait, let's define that for our audience for a second. Oh, if you've listened to the Dune episode, you know all about ornithopters. Yeah. No, didn't Da Vinci design some ornithopters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, flapping did, yeah. flapping wing aircraft. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just now, wanted to clarify well, now I'm afraid that's wrong. Did he design propeller-driven? or? Uh, I can't remember other than from playing an Assassin's Creed game where Da Vinci <laughs> was the guy who made, he was like your cue to your, to your James Bond, and he made one of those things for you to fly around in. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that Da Vinci made a working flying machine. I think he just... Yeah, I don't think... Right. Yeah, I don't think it was functional. We'll have to ask Jonathan Strickland. He would probably know. Uh, So, the next one here, and this is a short one, uh, is the Literature Prize. And it specifically goes to a paper called, Is Huh? A Universal Word? Conversational Infrastructure and the Convergent Evolution of Linguistic Items by... Mark Dingimonse, Francisco Torriera, and Nick J. Enfield. Uh, and this was in PLOS 1, uh, published yeah. in 2013. Okay, so the basics of this study are essentially that the writers involved take a look at the, the word sound, huh, specifically throughout the piece, they, they spell it H-U-H, Question mark. Yeah. It has I, to have the question mark. I, I, they used a phrase to describe it that I thought was very uh, appropriate and very interesting. They called it a repair initiator. Yeah. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but that's essentially the the gist of their argument and, and why it's important. So uh, they argue, one, that huh is universal, regardless of language. All human beings use a, a version of huh. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing they argue is that it is a word. Yeah, it's which not it, just a grunt. Yeah, apparently there was some uh, uh, people, some conflict apparently about whether or not it was a word or not, and they defined it because they said it's used similarly across cultures and it's also a learnt conventional form. And like you yeah. said, it's not grunting, it's not crying, it's right. not just a noise, it's a word that we use that has purpose to it, right? Yeah, it has a, it has a <clears throat> semantic definition. It it means something in conversation. It means I didn't understand what you just said. Exactly. So, and that's where uh, the other initiated repair thing comes in, right? So, huh is used for us to express to someone else whether they speak the same language or not that there is something going on where we're having trouble understanding, right? Whether it's like uh, a symbolic understanding or actual problem with the noise in your ears. You know, you have a problem hearing it. Now, they found that across different languages, it wasn't always pronounced exactly the same. Yep, that's true. It's sort of the essence of the word huh that comes through. Yeah, and it has the same variation in form as you would find in any other regular word. So as Mm -hmm. words kind of spread across cultures and they change slightly uh like they use dog as an example and how dog changes across different cultures huh is similar yeah. well i mean even in our own usage of it you have huh but then you also have mm-hmm. yeah so I'm, yeah so i mean we have, we I think, have multiple versions in english exactly yeah and the way that they conducted the study is and i feel bad for whoever had to sit down and go through all this data uh, they compiled data from published literature in 31 languages to see how it was used in written form. And then they collected data from recordings of naturally occurring conversations from 10 languages across five different continents. And basically, you know, looked for usage of huh, uh, and, and how it was understood. And there's the, you know, the, I won't go through it here to, cause I think it would be kind of boring, but there's this really interesting, uh, Table, visual table that they apply mm-hmm. to the study itself. I, I, it wouldn't work well on a podcast to talk about it. Basically showing all the different languages and all their locations across the world and how huh is used throughout them. So of course, why is it ridiculous? Well, it's, we're studying such a basic part of human existence that seems like it doesn't really require that deep of an analysis, right? Uh, and, and it's also, you know, just kind of a silly, 
the, the, the term itself means I don't understand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are seeking to understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they make a good case, I think, that this is an interesting thing to study, especially because they, they point out how huh is such a useful and powerful tool in conversation because it has this, uh, it has this complex sort of conversation management role that happens in such a short time span yeah. and really helps keep conversations on track and moving quickly because you don't have to stop every time and say, I don't understand what you just said. Right, yeah. Um, it's, for- it's interesting, though, because it's easy to dismiss huh, as um, as just a needless break in a conversation. But yeah. but I guess the the, the, the the idea here is that it's as small a break as is necessary. It's yeah. not a verbal pause because it has meaning to mm-hmm. it. But, yeah, it's a very short, quick, efficient way to say, I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, it's feedback, essentially, within conversation. Just let the, the other person you're speaking with know that, yeah. that you need more. Though this also made me think about how I feel like the word huh has multiple different meanings in English. It certainly oh, yeah. is what they're talking about, <laughs> yeah. uh, the the uh, the repair initiator. So you're in the middle yeah. of saying something, I mishear part of it, I say, huh? And you repeat. Well, yeah. But there's also, I notice, I often use huh as a punctuation that essentially means, that's curious. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's my primary usage of it, is someone will say something interesting, especially if it's like an audio interview over the phone and you feel like you need to give some feedback that you are interested and still on the line, mm. you go, huh. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. It, it can also mean <laughs> that now I'm waiting for the listeners to like send us in like a super cut of all the times we've all gone, huh, to each other. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> Noel can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know that Noel makes electronic music out of our verbal pauses and weird mouth noises, right? No, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, he keeps a folder and uh, one day he's going to get rich and famous. <laughs> by, by using all of our <laughs> well there's there's one other thing that I just want to add about this study and this is they do a little kind of navel gazy deep dive here in linguistic studies but it's important because we've actually talked about stuff like this before especially when we did that feral children episode on uh, the unlanguaged mind they have a kind of universal grammar post-structuralist argument going on, uh, or at least they get into that stuff by saying, huh, isn't part of our genetic makeup. They're not, just because we all use it doesn't mean it's like built into the human code, right? Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's not like screaming in pain. Yeah, exactly. And that, uh, th- rather what they're saying is that it's the result of convergent cultural evolution, that mm-hmm. as we, we as humans have evolved together and built up our societies together, this word has, it's, it's like this one, I mean, I'm sure there are many other constants, but it is one constant that is between all of these cultures. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> huh. Hey, so I think it's time to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor for this episode, but after that, we're going to come right back and talk about more weird science. All right. Well, uh, well, let's move on to another prize here. What do we have uh, in terms of management? The Ig Nobel Management Prize. Oh, I, I got a good one for you guys. This is this is especially. Uh, oh, this is going to hit a little close to home for for those of us who work in the digital media field. Uh, so, this is a paper uh, that is called "What Doesn't Kill You Will Only Make You More Risk Loving." 
colon, early life disasters and CEO behavior. Ah. It was written in September of 2015, or published, rather. Uh, and let me see if I can pronounce these names. Oh, I'm going to butcher these, but sorry, guys, if you're listening. Uh, Gennaro Bernil, Vinit Bhagwat, and P. Raghavendra Rao, I believe are their names. So this study finds that CEOs who have experienced fatal disasters without extreme negative consequences are more likely to be risky and aggressive businessmen. So I'm assuming by extremely fatal disasters here, that's an ex- extremely fatal to people that, that are, are not them. him and yeah. not. They, they're still alive. Okay. Yeah, they have to be. They're not undead CEOs. Right. But then also they haven't lost loved ones. Or exactly. Parents. Yeah, okay. that's that's the gist of it. Is that they. Whether the event had fatal consequences or not, it w- or, or they all do, but it didn't affect them directly. Gotcha. Now, by your use of the term businessmen, does this indicate that all of the people studied in this were male? You know, I'm pretty sure that they were. Yeah. yeah I, I I can't say definitively, but I want to say throughout the paper that they used the pronoun him a lot. Uh, but, you know, there wasn't any discussion of gender as far as I can remember. Huh. So, yeah, but it's safe to assume that they were mostly male. Uh, there is also another part to this argument, which is that uh, there they also found that similarly, CEOs who witnessed extreme negative consequences during a natural disaster, so like probably seeing their loved ones die in front of them, are more conservative in business. Uh, this includes how they deal with cash holdings, leverage, and acquisitions, whereas the other guys are uh, more likely to create debt rather than equity, and they're more likely to make their companies go through bankruptcy. Hold on. How many CEOs did they find who had been through a natural disaster? Well, with- let me tell you about their methodology, okay. which I think is a little... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> although, okay, I should back up with that. The, the way the way that they gathered their information is a little weird to me. However, they put it through rigorous, rigorous testing to make sure that they, their data was, uh, I guess, accurate. Okay, uh-huh. but we'll, why don't you guys judge by the time we get to the end of this and tell me what you think? So the f- first thing that they do is they looked at a sample of firms from 1992 to 2012, and they identified the CEOs of all these companies and found their basic demographic information, you know, their age, where they grew up, where they were born, yada, yada, right? Then they cross-referenced that with a database of all the natural disasters that happened in the United States during those times, and these include earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, severe storms, floods, landslides, and wildfires. And they specifically focused on the period of time when these CEOs would be between the ages of 5 and 15 because they cite that medical research shows that this is when our most lasting childhood memories tend to start and then stop. So, okay. The... I, I want to pause for a second here and say that the research itself, it's very easy to like read an abstract and say, well, these CEOs are more likely to do this thing and these CEOs are less likely to do this thing, right? So the actual numbers here, what they call leverage ratios, they seem pretty small to me. So the, the first group is 3.4% higher than the norm. And then the second group is negative 3.7% lower. So to me, this seems like it would fall into the margin of error for many other studies that we would look at. So, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, it just, it's, it seems a little low. I, I, I was expecting based on the conclusion that, that they had, it would be a much higher percentage. 
To be fair, though, like I said, they built in a lot of safeguards into this to keep data bias and variables out of the study's results. They even tested the robustness of their own methodology afterwards by applying it in various forms over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they argue that this supports the idea that CEOs who have not experienced extreme consequences are desensitized to the negative consequences of risk. Subsequently, those who are are more likely to be cautious. Hmm. Okay. So what do you think? Do you think, uh, like, this methodology sounds valid? You know, on the, the face it, of it? it, it it's <laughs> it, weird because this study definitely matches up with the stereotype that we, a yeah. lot of us carry around for the sort of inhuman CEOs that mm-hmm. we, that we ultimately have very little personal interaction with and they, they're just this, they seem to be this individual who has no connection with the suffering of others. Right. Yeah, and it yeah. seems like we, I don't know, we should always be especially careful about scientific results that seem to confirm our intuitions. Yeah. Because we're, I don't know, we're just susceptible to being lenient with them. That's why I thought that there was a sort of inherent ridiculousness to this for the Ig Nobel Prizes, right? Is that it seems like it's looking for causality between two seemingly unrelated experiences just to confirm our pre-existing bias. Hmm. But, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't go into it here because, it, again, like, it's very dense uh, and it, math, essentially, that they, that they went through here. Uh, I don't... I have to respect them for the diligence that they did in the study, mm-hmm. but I don't know necessarily that all that diligence adds up to being able to say that this is 100% accurate. What I would rather see is a study that correlates CEO risk-taking behavior with how they play the board game risk. Mm. <laughs> well, Like, we- are they a table flipper? <laughs> Ooh, nice. Yeah. Well, you know, suggest that to the board and maybe they can do that for the next, for next year's like Nobel Prizes. Although those are probably getting published already. Yeah. Uh, but there is, all right. So all that aside, it is an important study though, in the sense mm-hmm. that they found a link between CEOs and disaster experience and their corporate policies. And subsequently, this has real economic consequences, right? So basically yeah. what they're trying to do is say like, all right, this is a predictor. I assume for hiring or, you know, in, in, in some sense, uh, a predictor of how well this person is going to run a company. Yeah, I do think one thing that's useful here is it's just one more thing that helps us remember that CEOs and the people who make top-level business decisions are human, and mm-hmm. they're very much subject to human biases, uh, prejudices towards certain types of actions. They're not... I think there's sometimes this... Uh, at least in the pro-business mindset, there is this type of thinking that these people are efficiency-optimizing machines right. who just, you know, they make the decision that makes the most money all the time. But, I mean, they're people. They're, they make emotion-driven mis- decisions. They they are informed by their experiences and their feelings about the world based on the things that have happened to them. It's good to keep that in mind, and this is one more uh, tally in that corner. Yeah, yeah. and plus it also, it, it's another study that looks at how events shape who we are. Um, and in this in this case, it reminds me a lot of um, discussions I've had with people about comedians. Like you have a comedian right. who didn't, who who is, uh, Jimmy Fallon comes to mind. I remember he- hearing a, an interview with Jimmy Fallon where he he basically, you know, he wasn't picked on as a kid. He had pretty much had a nice run of things. And maybe that explains why I don't find Jimmy Fallon all that funny, mm-hmm. because 
he's not coming from this place of angst or suffering like yeah. the comedians, like the comedians, like comedians that you identify with. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> he's not he's not Schopenhauer's comedian, <laughs> right? Wow. So maybe he's the CEO <laughs> of of comedy. You know, as it lines up with this study. Wow. Oh man, you just really blew my mind with that, Robert. <laughs> like I am. That gives me pause because I really don't like Jimmy Fallon's humor. Um, I'm going to have to think further on this and come back on another episode. And I, I'm not saying I dislike Jimmy Fallon. He seems like a nice guy, but like I'll his say comedy it. has never spoken to Just me. his comedy. Yeah, I don't know him as an individual. Uh, He's like a CEO. I don't know the, those guys as individuals either. All no, I have to work I, I, with He stole my car once. He's a total jerk. Message. Really? Yeah. Well, here's what I think that I got from this study is that what we need to do is make sure that all people who become CEOs of companies saw their parents murdered in front of them when they were children, because yeah. then they'll be like Batman, Bruce Wayne, and they will run the company really well and clean up all the crime in their city. Uh, is there any evidence to support the idea that Bruce Wayne was, was slash is a good CEO? Though? Oh, we're going to have to do some contextual analysis to figure that one out. <laughs> In fact, I would I would be interested. Has anyone looked into the various CEOs in the comic book world? Who's mm. the better CEO? Is it Lex? Oh yeah, or is it Wayne? Yeah, oh. just in terms of a, a business perspective. Yeah. yeah, or you know Tony Stark. Or which is a better industry to to work in? Like who is it? Like sometimes having an evil corporation uh, over your shoulder if they're if they have good benefits. I was going to say, I bet the benefits at LexCorp are great. Mm. Great. They've got fantastic 401k, nice HSA package. I mean, business is good when you just manufacture toxic chemicals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, getting back to the seriousness of this, though. Um, the researchers were specifically interested in the strength of the dosage of, you know, experiencing these natural disasters mm-hmm. and what their effects would be. And this is a quote from the study. They say, the intensity of life experiences can result in nonlinear effects on subsequent risk taking. All right, we have one more study to look at in this episode, and I believe this one's to you again, Christian, the 2015 Ig Nobel Prize for Economics. Yeah, so this actually doesn't go to an academic paper. This, uh, the, <laughs> this is a pretty funny one, but also I can, I can see why they picked it. Uh, the organizers awarded the Thailand, the Thailand Metro Police directly for, <laughs> Uh, their efforts to combat rampant bribe-taking among traffic police. So apparently uh, in Thailand, uh, it's not all that uncommon for, you know, if uh, uh, you break the traffic rules, police pulls you over and you just throw them like three or four bucks or whatever and say, hey, let's, why don't you forget about this? Okay, so to combat the rampant bribe-taking that's going on among these traffic police, the officers in charge said, okay, if you refuse these bribes, you will receive a cash reward of up to 10,000 baht. So just for our listeners out there, 10,000 baht as of today converts uh, roughly to $281. Uh, or uh, for comparison, a police salary in Thailand right now is is on average six thousand baht a month, uh, as of 2013's data. So they make about 169 dollars uh, a month. So you know if they would refuse these bribes, they'd be getting more than a month's paycheck. This raises so many questions about yeah. just how the system well, works. It, it makes you wonder how much they're making off bribes in the first place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess I can preface this by saying that my family lived in Thailand for a couple of years. I didn't live there with them, but I went and visited and stayed with them. Um, so I'm, I visited Thailand. I'm somewhat familiar with Thailand, but I can't really speak to its 
you know, overall culture and the corruption in the government. I do know, as many people do, that, you know, Bangkok is infamous for, uh, drugs, prostitution, you name it, you know. And so I think that that was kind of part of the impetus here for this kind of weird policy that they enacted mm-hmm. uh, was to clean up the reputation of Bangkok. Hmm. But, of course, so it's it's sort of ridiculous. So ridiculous that after two weeks, the police canceled this policy. Uh, there were so there was so Go much back to your bribe social media criticism about this that they thought it was damaging the force's reputation. Uh, and two cops received the maximum award. <laughs> Based on them taking three dollar bribes, yeah, well, it's or kind of, not rather not taking those bribes. It's it's kind of like the whole scenario where somebody unloads the dishwasher and then expects uh, praise for it. Mm-hmm. Like you're supposed to unload the dishwasher. Yeah. You oh, you did your job. Yeah, you did your job. Congratulations. Yeah, there shouldn't be a, a monetary reward for not taking the bribe. Which is what you're supposed to do to begin with. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, the Metropolitan Police Bureau did not send any representatives to Harvard to receive the award at the oh. ceremony. I wish they did because that would have probably made it uh, quite a bit funnier. Did me. they not even send a video acceptance? No. Uh, well, you know what? I didn't catch that. They might have, but uh, they didn't get to have what's her name uh, sit there and tell them that they're boring. Oh yeah, <laughs> sweetie poo. I guess. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, so just another thing uh, is that Thailand also received the 2013 uh, Ig Nobel Award for Public Health uh, because they had research that was published about surgical solutions to involuntary penis amputation. I remember this one, yeah. Mm. So, you know, they're racking up the points in the Ig Nobel category. But let's get serious for a second here, okay? Here's why this is important. So the state officials and the police in Thailand are supposed to face life in jail if they're convicted of taking a bribe. Life in jail. Yeah. Wow. But it's pretty common. It's extremely common. Uh, in 2014, though, the Thai army took power after ousting the first female prime minister. Uh, and... They claimed that they had to restore order to the nation because nearly 30 people were killed in political protests against her being elected. Okay, so that's where this all came from. Uh, And after they took power, that's when they launched this campaign to clean up Thailand's image. So this measure, the traffic bribe measure, was part of that campaign. Uh, And specifically because that prime minister's brother is an ousted and influential politician who is also a former police officer. And he's known to have allies in the police force, and he's got some you know political influence with them. He fled the country in 2008. But really the speculation is that, like, if you look deeper at this, this is more about the military trying to take back control of the police okay. uh, from this, you know, acu- uh, allegedly corrupt politician. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, we're going to cut off right there, and we're going to pick up in the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where we'll roll through five more of the winners from the 2015 Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, there's going to be some fun stuff in there. So It'll if you enjoyed this one, come we're, back for more. We're going to talk about kissing yeah. and how many babies you can have in a lifetime. Yeah, we're going to talk about sticking essentially plungers on the butts of chickens. It's it's going to be it's going to be a great holding time. bees to your genitals. Yeah, oh, science. 
Hey, so in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcasts. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to those social media accounts, uh, such as Tumblr, Facebook, and Twitter. Yeah, and that is uh, where you can also uh, find the address to write into us if you were you know, particularly inspired by one of these papers that we discussed, or maybe you're one of the authors of one of them and want to communicate to us what was actually going on with your research, or perhaps you're involved with the Ig Nobel Prizes. If you want to contact us directly, Joe, what's the address? Below the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.